ஹலோ அண்ட் வெல்கம் டு அ நியூ எபிசோட் ஆஃப் யூ மீ அண்ட் தி எக்கானமி டுடே வீ வில் லிசன் டு பாகவி ராவ் ஆர் ஹோஸ்ட் அண்ட் ஆர் கெஸ்ட் ஃபார் தி டே டாக்டர் ஸ்ரீ பன்னா சதோபாத்யாய் லெட்ஸ் லிசன் டு தேர் கான்வர்சேஷன் ஆன் ஆக்சஸ் டு எனர்ஜி அண்ட் மெட்டர்னல் ஹெல்த் மோர் டீடெயில்ஸ் வில் பி ஃபர்னிஷ்ட் பை ஆர் ஹோஸ்ட் பாகவி ராவ் Good morning everyone and I am Bhargavi Rao. I work at the intersection of law, policy and community action at the Center for Financial Accountability focusing on infrastructure and energy. Thank you so much uh, Dr. Sriparna Chattopadhyay for agreeing to be on our podcast this week. So this podcast is on access to energy and maternal health. And uh, so before we start our conversation on um, maternal health and the importance of energy i will take this opportunity to introduce a guest for the day dr shipana chatopadhyay is an associate professor of sociology at flame university pune she received an am and a phd in anthropology with a focus on medical anthropology demography and south asian studies from brown university she holds a bachelor's degree in economics from st xavier's college mumbai her research over the last 16 years has been attentive to questions of inequities both gender inequities as well as intersectional inequities that shape life trajectories including its deleterious impacts on health education and life chances her work has been supported by the harry frank gagenheim foundation the national science foundation the mellon foundation the vera campbell foundation as well as more recently by the world health organization her research has been published in several international and national journals and has also been covered by the national press in india as well as internationally by the bbc she has worked for the government academia and non-profits in india the us and europe her first book the gravity of hope makes explicit uh, links between domestic and structural violence and will be published in 2022 thank you so much uh, dr shriparna it is a pleasure to have you with us today so like i said today's conversation is about maternal health and energy as we all know the sdgs have set a very broad agenda for advancing health and achieving equity by 2030 with sdg 3 calling for the promotion of healthy lives and well-being for all while achieving the quality and quantity of healthcare services in rural areas which will particularly affect maternal health so in this podcast we will discuss some of these issues and more that highlight the need for better energy access to women particularly for maternal and neonatal health so we have a few questions for you and thank you so much Uh, for joining us so before we uh, go ahead with the questions if you have anything that i have missed out in introducing you please feel free to share with us uh, no you haven't missed out anything thank you bhargavi for uh, inviting me f- uh, to this podcast and uh, for sharing my views about this issue and you're absolutely right that uh, you know uh, maternal health indicators are still poor for the country and though they have uh, declined in the maternal mortality ratio has declined in the last few years what we see is that uh, the average for the country as a whole actually conceals the large disparities that exist within india so there are some states for instance um, assam meghalaya 
of Bihar, which still continues to have pretty high rates of uh, maternal and infant death, uh, despite the gains that have been made in the rest of the country. And if you look at uh, other development indicators in these states, they're also not that great. So together, uh, you know, they, um, they paint a pretty poor picture of in, in which way we are heading. Assam had a very high maternal mortality rate to start off with, and the gains that they have made have, you know, been impressive at one level, but at another level, they're still, uh, you know, maybe three times that of Kerala, which is the state with the best maternal and child health indicators in the country. And I think maternal health uh, as, a, as an issue is a very broad problem that's spans several sectors. So energy and electricity is one of the sectors which will have a direct as well as an indirect impact on maternal and child health. But it also has to do with the larger political economy, the ways in which anemia has been handled or not in our country. Uh, You know, the fact that uh, there's so much of malnourishment and undernourishment, uh, even among adolescent girls, So when they enter pregnancy, they're already fairly malnourished. So the issues of maternal deaths and child deaths or neonatal deaths are all linked up with this host of, you know, complicated issues which are embedded within the larger political economy. So do I do want to lay that uh, up front and uh, we can, you know, sort of do a detailed discussion of um, energy and electricity and their contributions to improving maternal health. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, You have really laid out the vast landscape of uh, how we are doing in the context of maternal health and the importance of energy. So to start off, my first question would be from your many years of experience in the gender and, and maternal health space, how important do you think access to energy, particularly clean energy is for women? And this uh, includes adults and girls, senior women, and particularly from a point of, you know, reproductive health at uh, the different levels. Right. So uh, clean energy has a huge impact because in the way in which, you know, work, household tasks are allocated for women and young girls in our country. So in rural areas, the collection of firewood is often led, uh, left to the uh, adolescent girls. It's women who do cooking, so they are most exposed to indoor uh, pollution. Uh, At the same time, you know, if you don't have access to uh, uninterrupted electricity or clean energy like LPG, uh, you do have a lot of time that is spent on collection of firewood, walking long distances with huge loads on the head. So this kind of time poverty and energy poverty has impacts at various levels. One is definitely on health. Uh, secondly, on access to ad- education for adolescent girls, where not just in India, so in several low and middle income countries, you will see that Adolescent girls and uh, young women have been uh, tasked with these kinds of, uh, uh, you know, work at the household level. So, um, and also, you know, if they are walking for long periods of time um, with loads on their health uh, head, it also means that uh, when they're menstruating, they may not have access to, uh, because sanitation is also an issue, which is quite, uh, you know, clearly linked with uh, energy 
another development indicator. So, you know, menstrual health will definitely get compromised. The carrying of heavy burdens will have impacts on uh, women's reproductive health because, uh, you know, if you, if you go around carrying a lot of heavy stuff, you might have hernia, you might have uterine prolapse. So there may be direct impacts. And the indirect impacts definitely has to do with, um, you know, impacts on education and impacts on time poverty. So what happens is when you don't have time at all for yourself, so self-care is definitely something that's out of the window, but you also have less time to spend on if there are young children at home or uh, less time to spend watching, you know, programs on TV or hearing programs on the radio, which might uh, have, uh, you know, positive health programming and health messages as well. So all of these issues, um, you know, are definitely interlinked. So um, there's a study that was uh, conducted by Bellman et al. And they found that after controlling for other variables, the access to electricity and modern cooking fuels, along with education, reduced fertility. So there is an impact on women, um, women's fertility and demographic transition as well in countries which have high levels of fertility. This doesn't affect India as much because our uh, fertility level at the national level is at 2.1, but definitely there are states where the fertility level is higher than what we see at the national levels. Um, so, and they also found that the effects were most pronounced in areas with high fertility levels. So states like Uttar Pradesh, which does have um, a higher fertility level than the rest of the country, might definitely benefit from these kinds of measures of um, you know, having access to clean energy and uninterrupted electricity. So um, in the study, they concluded that expanded access to modern energy and education would uh, definitely accelerate demographic transition. Another study which was done in our neighboring country uh, in Afghanistan uh, by Plansky and Ladia Bev in 2021 came up with the following conclusions. And I quote this uh, directly from the studies, uh, start of quote, women in grid supplied communities, so they looked at um, women who were, uh, you know, uh, households which were uh, linked up with the uh, electricity, national electricity grid versus those that were not. And they found that women in grid supplied communities are on an average 27% more literate and complete more years of schooling compared to women in off-grid communities. So households in grid supplied communities reported a lower incidence of diseases, lower child mortality, improved access to antenatal care, and higher vaccination rates. But because uh, the clean energy transition has not happened in many villages uh, where they did their study, there was also a higher incidence of respiratory diseases. So when they, uh, the household switched from being off-grid for national electricity to grid-supplied electricity, they found that households were able to power either 4,200 hours of LED lights, uh, 1,340 hours of TV, or 55 hours of hot plate usage at no additional cost. Um, so what this study found that, um, that you know, uh, households with grid electricity do save time on the collection of biomass fuel, 
Um, and this saving time saving potential amounts to a whopping five hours a day. So you can just calculate that over a month, how many days, you know, uh, this translates to in terms of time that's saved. So as a result of this, what happens is because women are there more at home instead of going out to collect firewood, uh, men also spend on an average more time with their children and are more likely to help with household tasks that are typical in the female dom domain in the grid supplied households. So there are all these indirect effects as well that you see when uh, you know you have access to uh, uninterrupted power supply, gender dynamics change, there are positive impacts on education, health and economic impacts as well. Um, so all of these together, uh, you know, are very, very important for um, greater gender uh, equity. Uh, this, the second way in which uninterrupted electricity directly helps women is with income generation. Uh, and as we know that being employed does have positive uh, impacts on reproductive, maternal and child health outcomes, because it reduces poverty, it leaves women with a bit more disposable income for themselves and enables women's access to various social protection mechanisms. So even if they're working in the informal sector with income generation activities and becoming part of self-help groups, they can also become um, you know, more financially independent as well as get embedded in social protection measures. There was a study conducted for rural South African women by Dinkelman, um, which found that Ill women's employment increased by between nine to nine and a half percent within five years after electrification of villages while male employment increased to 3.5%, and the 9 to 9.5% was a statistically significant difference. So clearly this has, you know, um, huge impacts. And in India as well, you see uh, increases in women's non-farm self-employment in rural India in places that have been electrified. So um, the availability of public infrastructure has defi a definite impact on women's participation in paid work across various contexts. So whether we are looking at Bangladesh or uh, Afghanistan or India or South Africa, you see these kinds of, uh, you know, impacts overall. Um, so it's, I, I would say that, you know, there is, there is a lot um, to be said and to be gained from uh, having access to uninterrupted electricity and clean energy. Uh, which has direct and indirect impacts through these other kind of uh, mechanisms of education, employment, changing gender dynamics, uh, better health outcomes, etc. Thank you. Thank you uh, for that, you know, such a rich set of examples that you brought in, which highlight the importance of electricity and how it frees up uh, women's time a little bit, uh, which helps women to do other work. Given that, uh, you know, we actually celebrate the fact that India is 100% electrified today, but then when we look into some of the research done um, by CEEW and others, we still find that about 13 to 15% of India still does not have access to electricity. Uh, the fact that an electric pole reaches a village doesn't necessarily mean that all the households in the village uh, are lit up. So I can imagine the women in those households 
spending hours uh, collecting firewood, cooking, taking care of uh, the young and old, and also collecting water. Much of their time just goes yeah. in all of this. And uh, that kind of definitely translates to what is happening uh, in the context of, you know, lack of nutrition. And given that women are always the last ones to eat in right. households, yeah. uh, there is very little food that they themselves can access. So malnutrition, uh, which kind of feeds into poor maternal health, which again kind of, you know, affects the maternal mortality and infant mortality. It, it's like a vicious cycle. Despite the uh, fact that their energy output might be much higher than any other member of the family, just because exactly. the amount of work that they're putting in at home, as well as to keep the household running, um, you know, taking care of farm animals, uh, doing work in the farm as well, and anything else. So it's, um, I don't think there has been any study on this, but they should actually do a study to see how little Indian women sleep. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not just in rural areas, but also urban areas across because just because of the burden of uh, household chores that exist, but particularly in rural areas and in resource poor settings, uh, I just cannot imagine. And so it, there is this constant, you know, the body is not rested at all and it's not fed properly. So clearly it will have um, implications for uh, maternal and child health and long-term health outcomes for women themselves. Very true, very true. Uh, you, you've already highlighted uh, how it is affecting um, maternal health, but uh, it will be wonderful if you can elaborate it a little bit more on how lack of energy at the household level uh, is affects uh, reproductive and maternal health, given that um, see, we've also seen that uh, young children, uh, particularly um, girl children, are the first ones to be pulled out of school when a massive project comes out because parents are scared that uh, their children have to walk long distances or there is no access to safe mobility. And girl children are the ones who end up helping their parents and the other ones who are, um, you know, collecting fuel wood, like you already highlighted, collecting water, doing a whole lot of chores. So uh, if you can add a few more points on how it affects reproductive and maternal health. So I think that, you know, the ways in which women access uh, maternal information related to maternal health, family planning, contraception, all of this typically includes a digital medium these days. So uh, either they might get SMSs through their mobile phones, uh, they might see advertisements on television, or they might uh, hear it on radio. Uh, there's also the uh, cater of Asha's and Anganwadi workers who are, you know, fairly overwhelmed, but they also do give out that sort of information. So if they had um, uninterrupted access to electricity, uh, then a lot of this information, uh, although information doesn't always guarantee a change in practice, but it's the first step towards it. So all of this information could be given to them. So what we know from the Indian context is that within the first year of being married, um, most women in India end up having their first child. So there has been an emphasis on, um, you know, trying to have greater gap in the first when women get married, uh, not just because we have the one of the highest rates of early marriages in the world, 
but also because it gives time to the couple to bond um, you know as as a unit before children come in so uh, this information and most women do not have access when most adolescent girls do not have access to contraception or family planning information when they get married uh, a lot there's no comprehensive sexuality education in our country so how do they protect themselves from unplanned pregnancies um, you know and there's also this uh, pressure on young girls to uh, show evidence of their fertility in the first year of uh, getting married so if you are able to have programming um, you know in um, in the in the local languages and it's culturally uh, sensitive then a lot of this information and normative change that is required uh, for better maternal and child health uh, as well as for women to become more autonomous as far as, far as their bodily decisions are concerned becomes easier because you you can share that information you can share that information in a way that's personal so even if they have mobile phones we know that in the uh, indian context they did this big study in bihar and they found that even women who reported that they possessed uh, their own private phone they did not end up having it in their possession for most of the day it was with usually a male member of the family and what we have seen with the pandemic now is that even women who have smartphones they don't end up um, using it because for two years schooling was shifted online in many both urban poor and rural poor uh, households and because of that they didn't have access to their own device so there's this huge digital divide in india and most of that information is given digitally so as far as access to information changing practices you know seeing champions of change uh, seeing role models who have done things differently all of this this entire aspect of media and how do you you know have um, have how do you share information with a mass uh, audience that uh, aspect will definitely get impacted if you do not have uh, access to uninterrupted electricity so i would say that this is an indirect effect but nevertheless as far as maternal health is concerned it's a direct effect right um the second uh, way in which it directly impacts is through education so there's a lot of overlapping issues here so many households which tend to have uh, don't have access to electricity or are in uh, you know uh, rural areas or in states which are not as as electrified as as the others will also have other problems they will have problems with regards to how um, you know far away the secondary school is for girls so the primary schooling may still be possible because it's within uh, a certain distance but secondary schooling will also be far away and even if they did have access to a secondary school you need lights to study i mean you know uh, you you do need electricity for uh, for many many things that you do at home so um, i think there's a big impact through education as well so when adolescent girls have education that is interrupted uh, either because uh, many of these development indicators do go together so i think part of the problem is that when one is doing research on these issues that it's very difficult to assess independently the impacts of each of these things because they are pretty interconnected so to find a village 
or to find a household which doesn't have access to uninterrupted electricity or which doesn't have clean energy, but has a lot of other positive indicators is rather difficult, right? So the problem itself is, is sort of, I would say, you know, all of these variables do come together to produce these kinds of impacts. But uh, access to media and access to information about family planning will get directly impacted uh, if we don't have, um, you know, access to the internet or access to information through uh, radio or through television and, and so on. And radio has become, um, you know, in, in many African countries, a lot of really uh, nice programming and uh, much of the social messaging and health promotion messages happen through radio. And what I see from my fieldwork in rural India is that radio is somehow not that popular with the penetration of mobile phones. And mobile phones don't work on just batteries, they actually need to be charged. So if most of the information is given through, you know, mobile phones or other devices that require electricity, then uh, women will be left out of, uh, you know, having access to that information. Um, and then so through education, you know, through a lack of education, through a lack of access to information and knowledge, you will see all of these kinds of uh, spillover effects on uh, maternal and childhood. So at the household level, I think uh, that's how some of these mechanisms might work, uh, in addition to all the health-related issues that we have discussed earlier. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, you know, the, with all the digitization of everything across India. Uh, while, again, we celebrate a digital India, there is this huge disparity. And uh, again, if you go to rural homes, I have seen it myself. Uh, it is a man who sits in the living room with his phone being charged on that mm. one plug point, right. whereas um, the woman is in the kitchen where there is no light and uh, she has an old-fashioned phone where you know you can only call her or she can call you back, whereas it is the man who has a smartphone. Mm. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, there is this huge uh, gap in um, raising awareness to women and girl children. Yes, civil society is doing its bit uh, in terms of uh, the, the kind of programs they run for adults yes. and girls, but it, it's a very small amount and they can only do so much. And the last two years with the pandemic, even those programs have kind of fallen back and uh, uh, I'm sure a lot more children have fallen through the crack and particularly during their uh, years of puberty when this uh, information was very, very needed. And I'm sure a whole lot of them have also got, you know, married and exactly. um, packed off and because the burden of having lost livelihood immediately falls on the girl child. And uh, again, lack of information because of lack of electricity, a simple thing as uh, electricity at home can cause these gaps. Uh, so while we were discussing all this, uh, something else that comes to my mind is in addition to this lack of information, a lack of access to basic needs of uh, electricity, the fact that a large section of uh, India, particularly in rural areas and also in urban India, because today much of the construction and migrant workers who uh, have these temporary settlements, they bear the brunt of uh, cooking on um, 
biomass and right. uh, they are exposed to a whole lot of toxic fumes um, so it will be good if you can also highlight what it means for women to be constantly exposed to such toxic fumes and the implications of that on their maternal and reproductive health right so um air pollution and uh, you know particulate matter has uh, impacts which have been actually uh, studied uh, across the board in in different countries um so um so a study in 2019 for example found that prenatal air pollution uh, the, the inhalation of toxic fumes from all these different sources uh, is maybe associated with gestational diabetes in women which in turn has impacts on maternal and birth outcomes so if you have gestational diabetes you're likely to have a more complicated pregnancy um you know baby that's bigger uh than would be for the gestational age and more likely to have uh, negative obstetric outcomes uh it may also be more critical for certain at risk pollutions so again here you see uh you know both intersectional disadvantages and pre existing morbidities coming into the picture you gave the example of construction workers so construction workers in urban india who live in temporary accommodation without access to um, you know lpg for cooking are already exposed to the outdoors and the outdoor air pollution that you see uh, in urban areas and on top of that they are exposed to maybe construction dust um, and other pollutants and they are exposed to the air pollution uh, that you get from cooking with biomass so all of these uh, will produce a worse effect uh, clearly on them uh compared to those populations who may be exposed to just perhaps one kind of pollutant uh so the so the way in which this happens and um from a biological perspective is they have identified oxidative stress to be the most relevant with evidence from increased levels of what's called lipid peroxidation products and inflammatory cytokines cytokines are a word we have heard a lot during the covid pandemic because you know this is a kind of an immune system response where um, your body sort of goes into an overdrive when they uh, you know uh, detect a pathogen or a, a toxic uh, pollutant that enters the system in response to air pollution exposure uh, so these are sort of one of the pathways uh, interestingly one study in the united states found a positive association between maternal exposure to air pollution and autism spectrum disorder in children uh where the uh, you know inhalation of particulate matter is up to 2.5 microns another chinese study china also has high levels of air pollution as we do found that nitrous dioxide concentration was positively correlated with term low uh, you know with full term but low birth weight babies as well as pre term birth weight babies for over 21000 women and or when they inhaled but particulate matter concentrate with concentrations of 2.5 to 10 uh, microns it was also associated with preterm birth i mean i we haven't done these kinds of studies in india and i do want to say that there is an urgent need to do it uh, because the amount of air pollution that one is exposed to particularly in urban areas particularly among populations who do not have access to adequate housing or they live in areas you know which are next to landfills or next to 
that a lot of uh, garbage is being burned. Uh, for, for them, their reproductive and maternal health outcomes are going to be really bad. Uh, we haven't uh, really done a systematic study on air pollution on, on all of these things, but what we see from the experience of other countries is that it has clear impacts um, on women's uh, health and on maternal health, uh, as well as neonatal and child health. And, and we do know that air quality is getting worse, um, and it's not just in Delhi, it's in several uh, Indian cities. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be enough, uh, you know, political will to actually tackle the problem. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, this, this is something that I do feel very seriously uh, concerned about because it affects a range of uh, different age groups, not just women, but young children, the elderly, all of them um, are going to have, uh, you know, negative impacts on their health. Uh, as a result of it. And if you, you know, and, and again, with health as well, all of these things are linked. So if you develop asthma, management of asthma becomes another, you know, kind of a financial burden for poor families that they have to deal with. So, I mean, uh, I can say from my own personal experience, having developed asthma recently, that it is not uh, an inexpensive thing to have. Uh, and that again will, you know, have long-term impacts on you know, how resources are allocated within the household, what money can be spent on food versus inhaler versus something else. So, you know, there are all these, again, chain reactions that you see um, with, with just that one thing um, that that may be going wrong. But for the majority of, you know, women who are disadvantaged by their caste or class locations, it won't be just the one thing. It'll be the multiplier effect of all of these coming together to produce, um, you know, really deleterious health outcomes for them. Yeah, uh, thank you for highlighting that. And, you know, a simple thing like um, developing a headache because um, the garbage next to our homes are burning or being uh, sitting in traffic for a very long time and you're sneezing or you develop a temporary cough. Uh, some of us might quickly access a clinic or uh, today sitting in uh, the comfort of urban work from home scenarios. It's easy to even get an online consultation and uh, get your doctor to look into your problem and uh, give um, prescribed medications and which again, many of us can probably order online without having to go out. But that just kind of is so disturbing with the fact that in rural India or even in urban India where migrant health workers are constantly exposed to both the biomass base, the particulate matter and the dust. And if they develop a cough or a headache or even asthmatic symptoms or uh, any other symptom, the fact that they cannot afford to go to a private health clinic mm -hmm. or to a good hospital and their dependence on a public health center or, or any other government tertiary um, care centers is very important. Right. So in this uh, context, can you also throw some light on what is happening to the public health centers 
particularly uh, with focus on energy. We know again from the pandemic that many of our public health centers don't have uh, access to a continuous supply of electricity mm -hmm. and many of them don't have facilities to run many of the basic uh, instruments that they will uh, need right. to diagnose some of the problems. Uh, so if you can sh share some anecdotes and uh, throw some light on the public health centers and other tertiary care centers, it'll be great. Yeah, so what the pandemic has shown us is that our public health infrastructure in general is in shambles, except for a few outliers, uh, you know, in our country. So uh, in, the, in the public health setup, you do have different levels. So the first level is the primary health center, the PHC. Then you have the community health center, uh, which is at the district level, uh, sort of not at the district, at the sub-district level, maybe Tehsil or Taluk level. And then you have the tertiary care centers, which are at the uh, you know tertiary level, which is uh, takes more complicated referrals and and so on. Just give me. Um, look at, um, you know, in terms of where does, you know, who gets really affected by these kinds of disrupted um, electricity? Um, do they even have 24 hours electricity at these different levels? So from my experience, um, what I have seen is that many of the PHCs don't. Some of the CHCs also, which let's say in principle, they are supposed to have a blood bank because they are able to be, uh, you know, uh, they, they should be able to handle certain complications with pregnancy. So let's say there's loss of blood, uh, which happens a lot with women who have um, anemia to start with, or a C-section is required, which means that the operation theater will be needed. You will need the instruments for anesthesia, for, you know, monitoring heart rate and so on. Um, they, because they don't have access to uninterrupted electricity, even if they have a refrigerator or cooling system for the blood bank, they can't reliably use that service. So what happens then is that cases which, um, you know, uh, would, could possibly be handled at the community health center gets referred to the tertiary health centers, which are already overburdened and bursting at their seams because they are handling, you know, complicated case cases. Uh, many of them are at the intersections of two states. So they're getting the, you know, inflow of patients from both states. And I've seen this, uh, you know, in the context of North Karnataka, where, uh, which is generally a more under-resourced part of Karnataka com compared to Southern Karnataka, where any case where even remotely uh, where the, you know, OBGYN or uh, sometimes the doctor at the CHC or who may not be an OBGYN perceives that there's a little bit of risk, they directly refer them to the tertiary facility because they can't handle it. And they and because they don't have, I, I remember going to one CHC and they didn't have any electricity there for, uh, you know, about three hours. And how do you keep, you know, uh, vaccines cooled? You're supposed to be able to do the immunizations for children. So then comes the issue of do all of them have access to generators or to backups? So unless basic infrastructure is put in place where, uh, you know, we're not asking for complicated brain surgeries in these places, but even to be able to give blood to a woman who has, you know, had had postpartum hemorrhage, 
uh, and be able to do immunizations, you do need, uh, you know, uninterrupted electricity. Uh, and that's, that's just not possible, uh, even in southern India. And in northeastern India, where I have also done a bit of field work, the situation is even more grim. So, uh, you know, unless we we are able to, so all these infrastructure upgradation projects which happen, uh, all these shiny concrete and glass buildings, but infrastructure is not just about the physical infrastructure of having these buildings or having machinery, um, you know, ultrasounds. So if they want to do ultrasounds, women are supposed to have three ultrasounds as part of their antenatal checkups during the pregnancy. How are you going to do ultrasounds without electricity? If you have to do, uh, you know, anemia testing, right? How is even this functioning uh, lab possible? Or um, you maybe you can do an anemia testing through, you know, this very basic thing that they do where they put a drop of blood in a beaker of a solution and they see whether the blood sinks to the bottom. And if it doesn't, they know that the, the woman has anemia, but they cannot say at what level. Is it severe? Is it moderate? Uh, and, and the interventions will depend based on that. If you're not able to test urine to see whether she has gestational diabetes or not, no functioning lab, uh, you know, basic screenings for ultrasounds, not there. So what happens is a lot of women, even in rural areas, end up using the private sector for um, many of these kinds of uh, medical needs. So they may ultimately have a birth in a public hospital because the expense of having birth in a private sector is, is very high and unaffordable to the majority of rural women. Uh, but for many of these things, there are all of these out-of-pocket expenses that they have to meet, which they cannot, uh, you know. Uh, so there's always a trade-off in terms of, you know, what where money is being spent and why it is being spent. And if you have an emergency in a place which is, you know, geographically remote, um, so just to get uh, to the tertiary facility where this is there, so it may take three hours or four hours, and that time is so crucial that, you know, uh, they may not make it, the, the unborn uh, child and the woman. So all of these issues, you know, uh, make me think that we have not been able to resolve very basic things like clean water, uh, access to uninterrupted electricity, uh, which will have long-term impacts on health. So rather than focusing on things like, you know, digitalization of health records, which is a very expensive uh, and, and, and a doomed to fail project, because I know that in the NHS, they tried to do it over several years at a huge cost to the taxpayers. And ultimately they had to abandon the project because even within the NHS, uh, the National Health Services in the UK, uh, where you where you know the majority of people have access to records, where they are literate, it's still very difficult to make these connections uh, at all these different levels. So uh, you know, one has to ask questions as to why we are not able to do some very basic things which uh, can improve public health greatly, right? Um, clean water clean air, um, say, clean energy, access to uninterrupted electricity. If we just get these things in place, uh, we will perhaps not need the very expensive other interventions. So the cost saved will be 
much more if you know some short term investments are made in the right areas yeah you you've kind of you know opened a, a bag of uh, <laughs> things to be discussed here because uh, it is so important to have this basic energy uh, at the um, public health uh, center level and i am like um, so disturbed with the fact that you know across india today over the years it was uh, coal based thermal power plants that displaced uh, rural communities uh, then hydel projects also displaced uh, rural communities and today large scale uh, utility scale uh, solar parks and wind farms and uh, others they are also um doing the same while they displace these rural communities not just of, out of their land but also of their livelihood the chain reaction begins there there is lack of food security and the nutritional insecurity kick starts um poor health and then there is no electricity at the public health center uh and then they have to travel long distances to access uh, basic public health uh they don't have the money for that and then you know we are pushing a large section of our population below the basic uh, indicators and i'm sure uh, hopefully if the census is done well in the next census all these numbers will pop up and we'll be able to see uh so you you really underline the importance of access to clean energy uh, at all these uh, public health uh, centers starting from the primary uh, care center to the tertiary care centers and how they can address simple things like you know testing for anemia or uh, testing for gestational diabetes and being able to handle um, c section uh where energy is so important and this is also probably uh something that investors uh can look into because uh, sometimes you know investors they just look at uh, this entire transition to clean energy and we have a whole lot of investors investing on large scale um solar power parks and wind power parks and tidal energy so and now more uh, recently it is waste to energy uh, not really looking into addressing um problems um clearly so if only they invested on ensuring all public health uh, centers have uh, uninterrupted power supply it will really go a long way and i i think you really um brought to light some of these very crucial uh, points um on the table so moving forward uh i'm just curious i know you mentioned a few uh in the beginning but uh, are there studies that have focused or reviewed access to energy at the healthcare facilities and hospitals uh, uh which kind of um if if you can also highlight some of the impacts and share some examples so there was a systematic review that was conducted uh, in 2019 which found that electrification was generally associated with positive health outcomes uh, when uh, healthcare facilities were electrified such as reduced mortality lower rates of diseases improved quality of access to care uh, and poor electricity reliability was associated with negative health outcomes including increased increased morbidity and mortality 
lower quality of care and reduced utilization of health services. So the overall quality of the evidence, what they found was weak, which makes me think that perhaps more um, of these studies, which directly looks, uh, you know, which tries to unravel the direct and indirect impacts of electrification of healthcare facilities need to be done. Um, so it should, uh, you know, uh, we, uh, there's one study done in Gujarat, uh, in India, where, which is called the Jyoti Gram Yojana, uh, which was electrification of villages in Gujarat. And what they found is that significantly, uh, it significantly improved the operational capacity of health facilities, in particular primary health centers, by increasing the availability and functionality of a wide range of essential devices and equipment. And it also increased access to health information through television, something that you know, we were discussing earlier. And it increased utilization of health services, uh, the probability of children receiving critical vaccinations and pregnant women receiving antenatal care. So we've already looked at um, you know, the mechanisms by which this is made possible through the use of uh, you know, uninterrupted electricity. Uh, so I think that it's not as if we need um, you know, to systematically establish that this is necessary. I think some of this is just very obvious in terms of what's needed. Um, I think it's a problem of um, seeing the projects through, right? So the implementation of it is what is really important. So when you when we make claims that uh, you know there's an electric pole in every village, uh, is every like you mentioned, is every household connected to it? Are all the public health facilities connected to it? Right? Are all the schools connected to it? Are all the Anganwadi um, centers connected to it? So all of this, uh, you know, the delivery of what we call public goods, but which are becoming uh, increasingly privatized, whether that's education, whether that's health, um, none of that is, uh, you know, uh, going to uh, be possible without access to uninterrupted energy of one sort or another. And I think, you know, you brought up the issue of displacement and livelihoods, and I think that's really important as well, because forced migration as a result of uh, loss of livelihoods because of either climate change or because of development projects uh, is a really uh, sort of uh, you know, problematic thing that we have in India. I don't think we examine it as critically as we should. We've, there's a lot more on the development side displacement of it, but where forced migration is uh, caused by climate change is happening, uh, there's not as much um, you know, out there as, as there should be. And then you have a large population of internally displaced people who may have had access to adequate housing and sanitation earlier, but now they don't because they no longer live in the places that they used to. Sense of community is gone, social network is gone. So, so much is lost, uh, you know, by, by that. So I think that, it, and it's, it's also a security issue as well. Um, in the long run, both in terms of you know food security, but also security from the perspective of uh, domestic uh, security, because if you have such a large population that's disenfranchised in this way, uh, then what are we, you know, what do we, what do we do about that? Uh, is that's not good for um, civic life as well, right? 
um, so so I, again, I remember from uh, you know my fieldwork in Assam that uh, I, I was in uh, in Chirang uh, district, which is part of the Bodoland uh, Territorial Autonomous Districts. It's one of the four districts, which is part of the BTAD. And uh, over the last few years, there has been a lot of ethnic conflict uh, because of uh, you know access to resources, which has been made worse by climate change. So. Um, you have now an internally displaced population, both Bodos as well as, uh, you know, Bengali Muslims in that area, where every year, uh, you know, the river is encroaching, taking away agricultural land, and there's an even greater pressure on resources. Uh, and when lives and livelihoods are affected in this manner, clearly, you know, uh, the biggest brunts are born, uh, are born by women and children. Uh, so all of these, uh, like I said, I, I feel that you know this is this is a very complex bunch of um, issues that we have, which are interlinked with each other. But the intersectoral approach that is required to uh, you know as, uh, to assess as well as to mitigate these problems, we don't see that. We see people working in silos, um, you know, uh, and 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 that never actually helps because you're not connecting the dots and seeing, uh, you know, you're trying to solve one problem, but what that's leading to, whether it's creating more problems or solving other basic problems that they have. Uh, so participatory approaches, which take the needs of the community into concern, I think those are really essential in, in ensuring that, you know, communities are able to not just live, but also thrive. Very true. Um, that also takes me to, um, you know, a couple of years back, it was in 2018 that uh, I visited the same place that you mentioned, the Chirang uh, Valley area. And it was an issue of domestic violence um, that uh, we were all discussing about. And there was also the challenge of uh, the Bodo Tribal Council laws and then uh, the more modern Indian domestic violence laws um, being implemented. So uh, one woman was sharing that how under the tribal council, if you didn't uh, want to live with your partner anymore, you could just leave, take the things that you want and leave. But whereas with the domestic violence laws in place, uh, the man has to provide some kind of uh, maintenance fee. So most women have now opted for the latter because uh, th that is easier and um, it it's more beneficial. But that had also led to uh, a man committing suicide because the court had uh, said that they have to separate and he has to provide a maintenance fee for um, his partner. So in a situation like this, when we were talking a little bit more, she said, yeah, there is no light in the house in the evenings. What will people do? The husbands come and pick up some fight and the women land up, um, you know, bearing the brunt of that and they get beaten up. That just opened another entire totally different, um, you, you know, point of how having basic lighting at the household level will probably bring some peace and calm as well because, you know, children should be playing but um, with their parents and parents have to be providing 
um, good care and comfort and everything. But in the evenings, there is darkness, there is smoke, um, there is no food to eat, which also throws up these possibilities of, uh, you know, frustrations and it, it, it leads to the kind of situations we are in. So uh, that kind of takes me to another question. In the context of all of this, are there um, mandates provided by WHO or other international agencies um, where you know there are hundreds of protocols? Uh, is, is there something on access to the basic minimum energy, uh, particularly for women or public health centers or something that caters to maternal health and well-being? And I, I mean, I'm just thinking aloud. Um, to my knowledge, um, so the WHO published a 115-page report, um, uh, which is as part of the Sustainable Energy for All, S4E All uh, initiative, um, which, which has this very lofty aim of achieving universal access to energy by 2030 and double the rate of improvement in energy efficiencies and the share of renewable energy in the global energy mix. Um, I say lofty because I, I really don't see how you know, that can be met. Uh, the, the report was actually directed towards S4EOL's new high impact opportunity um, HIO on energy for women's and children's health which aspires to improve availability and quality of essential maternal and child health care through the scale-up of energy access in health facilities. Um, so I don't know of too many protocols which mandate access to energy, but the fact that the WHO published such a you know, thorough report on it makes me think that there's definitely uh, an acknowledgement and an interest in, and as I said, you know, the pathways are clear for people to see how uh, energy affects, access to energy affects uh, women and children. Um, it's just a matter of making sure that it really gets done, which, uh, you know, seems to be the big challenge over here. And I think as with all policies being turned into programs, um, it's really political will more than anything else. Like if you take the issue of air pollution in Delhi, right? So every year, uh, they have the stubble burning, which causes air pollution. Everybody knows that. And, and people suffer inordinately for two months as a result of it. This should not be such a difficult problem to solve. But even with the repeal of farm laws, I think this was one of the clauses put in the farm laws, which were eventually repealed, that there shouldn't be any stubble burning. Um, and, and those have been repealed. So there seems to be not enough understanding or buy-in from the stakeholders in terms of how do you solve these kinds of issues, right? And I'm bringing that issue because it's a very well-known issue among uh, people. And if Delhi can't solve it, you know, which is the capital of the country, um, you know, the center of power for, for India, uh, I don't know what hopes we have for the rest of the country in terms of being able to solve um, these issues. So. I think what we really need are very bold political, um, you know, actions. Some of which are bound to be unpopular, but the way that politics works in all countries is that 
um, politicians shy away from unpopular measures because it means that they'll not get elected the next term, even if it's in the long-term benefit of the population that they seek to serve. So if we don't have, uh, you know, those kinds of measures that are put in place, I think the future, unfortunately, looks very grim for for the majority of uh, poor people in, in our country. Because like I was saying, you know, we have privatized everything. So for those people in Delhi who can afford, everyone has an air purifier at home or multiple air purifiers. So we've even, you know, privatized the air that we breathe in, right? In in in, in that way. Because what what else do you do? You have uh, and and the majority of the middle class and the upper middle class have checked out from state services. So the impact of the shrinking welfare state is felt most disproportionately by the poor uh, who are really the demographic majority in our country. The minority that's elite can afford to not uh, engage with issues of state accountability because they are not the ones who are most affected by what the state does or does not. Uh, So I think that that's where the slogan of Bijli Pani Ghar, which used to be the electioneering slogan, the bijli has gone away from this. Now other things have, uh, so has the pani. The, you know, now other things which are totally unrelated to any welfare, uh, you know, measures or anything that improves the lives of people, polarizing religious issues, polarizing caste issues, have uh, got embedded in the political discourse, uh, which which hits a new low every, every day as we speak. I, I hope that, you know, that there'll be enough pushback from, civil society organizations, from initiatives by people, from the common citizenry to demand greater accountability from the state uh, in terms of making improvements to these uh, areas. That was extremely uh, well said. And as a last question, what would be your recommendations to improve and ensure um, 24-7 access to energy from the maternal health point of view? So I, as I've mentioned before, I think at the very fundamental level, uh, we need to ensure that public health infrastructure has access to uh, uninterrupted electricity so that they can do the work that they are supposed to do, that there isn't so much burden Uh, on tertiary care facilities. So at the PHC and the CHC, the primary health center and the community health center levels, they must have access to uninterrupted electricity and also have enough medical personnel. So uh, both of those two things have to be in place. The second thing I, uh, you know, feel that there should be some attempts to bridge the digital divide that we have right now. So mobile phones, which are used to deliver health messages that can only happen with uninterrupted electricity, and also if um, you know more women have access to their own devices, so that will not only lead to access to life-saving information, but also you know perhaps open up um, uh, you know the, the global marketplace for them and will enable them to create uh, better livelihoods. Uh, the work of frontline workers, Ashas and Anganwadis, who I think are the spine of the healthcare system in our country will become infinitely easier um, if uh, they have access to uninterrupted electricity. And uh, this entire prospect of telemedicine, which we have not discussed at all, which has a lot of scope um, 
in, in rural areas where you do have a huge shortage of medical personnel, that can be realized if you have access to uh, you know un uninterrupted electricity because if all you need is a mobile phone for tele the, you know for telemedicine uh, you don't necessarily have to see the person it's great if you can uh, but that would require a video call through broadband facilities which you know they may or may not have but just being able to speak to someone who can uh, do a clinical diagnosis just by hearing what your symptoms are that could be, you know, the difference between life and death um, for many people. Uh, and telemedicine also has great, you know, potential in the mental health sector as well. Uh, so receiving counseling through phone, um, uh, which, uh, you know, we, the, we haven't even spoken about mental health, which is uh, something that affects reproductive health. It affects, uh, there are these kinds of, you know, uh, interlinkages between poor mental health and poor reproductive health and poor reproductive health and poor mental health. So all of those areas of health um, where, uh, you know, telemedicine can have a big impact, at least that can be realized. So uh, without, when, when, you know, when we're discussing digital health in India, I think the promises of telemedicine really uh, need to be foregrounded in that conversation, not just digitization of health records and selling them off to the private sector, uh, you know, to make money. That should really be a secondary concern. That leaves me with a ray of hope because uh, you uh, put it all so clearly uh, with uh, such uh, clinical precision in the different areas that uh, energy plays such an important role in the context of mental health and public health uh, in rural and um, semi-rural and also urban areas. So with that little ray of hope, you know, this uh, union budget, which is perhaps a done and dusted document, but nevertheless, it promised two lakh Anganwadis would be up upgraded under what is called the Saksham Anganwadi scheme which aims to uh, bring in a new generation of Anganwadis that will have better infrastructure with audiovisual aids for early child development. And the budget 2022 also had huge promises and big commitments uh, for mental health. Uh, so, And this is uh, definitely possible with all the sun shining in the country, uh, you know, with where we are setting up huge utility scale solar parks instead of all those panels can be put on the public health centers, the community health centers, the tertiary healthcare centers, the mental health centers, all centers where telemedicine is possible. I think that will leave a larger population of people with better health and will bring in a lot of well-being. Uh, we will, we, it will, I'm sure, reduce a whole lot of uh, uh, domestic violence, probably uh, put children back to school, uh, particularly girl children, and improve the health of uh, senior citizens as well. You know, the big promise that was made on uh, the transition to clean energy by our Prime Minister at the COP26 meet in Glasgow, as we move forward and transit to solar, wind, tidal. I sincerely hope that nobody will be left behind and we will all ensure that no woman will be left behind particularly and ensure that last mile connectivity will happen. So as the world celebrates uh, International Women's Day this month, I hope some of these ground realities will be comprehended 
and uh, the basic demands will be considered and met with. Thank you so much for being part of this uh, podcast and giving so much of your time. Uh, looking forward to more such conversations uh, with you on the topic. Thank you so much. Thank, thanks a lot, Bhargavi. It was really enjoyable um, to have a chance to have this discussion. That was an enlightening session with Bhargavi and Dr. Sri Panna. Hope you all had a good time listening to their conversation. And keep listening to you, me and the economy by Centre for Financial Accountability.